Micah 6. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to, to forget your ill-gotten treasures, your wicked house, and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? You, your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing, because what you serve I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You have observed the statues of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. Thanks be to God. All right, let me pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and that we get to read it together and hear it together as a church community. I think even that can do something really powerful in our hearts and minds. And so we pray that your word would just draw us into your presence, that you'd speak to us, that you'd change our lives, uh, you'd change our church community, and that you'd just mold us to be a little bit more like Christ Jesus through the hearing of your word and through the doing of it. We love you, Jesus. Uh, we pray all these things to your glory. Amen. Uh, so today is the last day that I'm preaching a sermon in Micah, for this series at least. Uh, next week, my friend Corey Farkas uh, will be here, and he's going to be a guest preacher. So it'll be fun for you to hear someone from outside of our community. Uh, Corey uh, and I went to seminary together up at Gordon-Conwell. And he's actually sat in on a few classes with Terry uh, as well. So it was actually a mutual acquaintance, and he will be here next week. So I hope that you'll come back and listen to him finish up the book of Micah. But today, I really want to sum up what it's all about. And our passage actually, I think, does a great job of kind of getting to the heart of the book of Micah. Uh, in fact, our foundation verse does a really great job of that. Uh, so we're going to dive into chapter 6 here, and then we're going to review a little bit, and we're going to get into the sermon itself. But I did want to start out with pointing out that verses 1 and 2 are an indictment. Now, I'm not 
a lawyer, uh, but what this means is that God is bringing formal charges against his people. Right? Now, this passage doesn't say if this is necessarily Judah or Israel. I think it's just the whole people. Anyone that's been in rebellion, all the people, God's bringing a charge against them. It's, a, it's an accusation of a serious crime, and he calls witnesses to the stand. And you would expect, like in a common courtroom scene, well, you would call like a person that would enter into the room and sit on the stand and answer questions. But God doesn't do things like we do things. <laughs> he calls in the mountains. He calls in the hills. He calls in creation. He calls in all those places that the people may have been committing idolatry on those high places. They're going to act as the witnesses against the people of God. And yet in our chapter, we don't see the charges. The charges are not listed in our chapter. Well, it's because Micah has been listing the charges all the way through this book. So this is an opportunity to kind of review some of those charges. So in the, the first couple chapters, chapters 1 through 3, uh, we see in Micah chapter 1 there was the charge of idolatry. Right? It was specifically levied against northern Israel, but then kind of it's infecting southern Judah and Jerusalem. What is idolatry? It's not just worshiping a false idol, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the core of it, but it's not loving God. It's not loving God first. And they've been, they've been worshiping the false idols. They've been not loving God first. And that has led to injustice. And we see that in Micah chapter 2. Not loving God correctly leads to not loving your neighbor correctly. And so they were abusing the poor. They were stealing land and homes. Uh, and then they were, they were kind of uh, propping up false prophets to justify it all. They're like, okay, we need, we're going to do these evil things. Then we need our religion to kind of back us up. And then we see in Micah chapter 3, this just kind of leads to more and more problems. We see in a misuse of power a misuse of authority by kind of the whole government, right? The prophets, the priests, and the kings. They're all misusing the authority God has given them. And so these are some pretty stiff accusations, some pretty stiff charges, but thankfully we get to the second half of the book, right? The second half of the book goes like this. God promises hope. Hope is coming. He begins to explain it in Micah chapter 4, a day of justice and peace. Just that, that kind of picture of an eternal day. And we see the promise of the temple, right? And we, we hear about a restored Zion. And if you go back and you listen to the sermon, we find that that's really fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That's not just fulfilled in like the rebuilding of a temple. Christ Jesus is the temple. And then Micah chapter 5, uh, yeah, it, just, it reaffirms that. We, we get the promise of the shepherd king like Andy reminded us, a promise of a good and just king who will be the king that we needed all along. And we, of course, get that in Christ Jesus. I was at the, the youth Bible study this week. I went on Thursday night, and if, if people didn't know the answer, they just like threw out Jesus. They're like, Jesus is the answer. Well, you're right. Jesus is the answer. He is the just and good king, and he's the one who's going to bring that day of justice and peace. And then we get to our final two chapters. We get to Micah chapter 6 and Micah chapter 7. So today we're going to be talking about what God really wants. Like what does God want in religion? And we're also going to, as part of that, hear about what God doesn't want in religion. And then Micah chapter 7, which you'll hear next week as Corey closes up, it's going to be this final call to place your hope 
in the Lord, to really trust in him above all other things. But today, in Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, we heard about the indictment and the kind of the charges. We're going to hear kind of a, a call to what God really wants, but as part of that, we're going to hear a little bit of a judgment, a kind of a call to repentance. In verses 3 through 5, we, we hear this, my people, what have I done to you? I love that. God is saying, like, you know, humans, humans have this way of just, like, naturally blaming God. It's like human nature. When things don't go well, when things don't go our way, or when something bad happens, when a tragic event happens, and we don't have an explanation for it, we blame God. <laughs> and, and the people of Israel, they're, they're doing the same thing. They're, they're saying, God, this is your fault. God, I don't, I don't believe in you anymore because bad things have happened to me. Or, or I'm angry at you because of this thing. Well, we don't know God's plans. And what does God say? He says, well, look, <laughs> he's kind of establishing his credentials. You can trust me. Look back at the history we have together. Look, look at all that we've been through. I took you out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. I gave you amazing leaders, Moses, Aaron, Miriam. They led you out. When the king of Moab tried to curse you, he, he tried to hire uh, the prophet Balaam to curse you, well, I gave you blessing instead. I gave you goodness. And so that's just a reminder as we kind of head into this final call that when we're tempted to blame God, when things go wrong in our lives, and they will and they do all the time, we can recall to mind some of those times that God has been good to us. And we can remind ourselves of the times that God has been good to us, his people, to the church, to, to Christians, that he's been faithful to us throughout the story of life, throughout redemptive history. And so now, time and time again, as we recognize God's faithfulness, we have to ask, how are we going to respond to God's faithfulness? Like, what are we going to do about God's goodness. And this is kind of the part that I think keys into a little bit of where we're at today. This is important because the way the Israelites kind of respond to the idea of God and perhaps to God's goodness, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. They, they respond a certain way. See, they have a wonderful temple, so they go to that. They had God's presence, all these good things that God had done for them. And they think that God wants them to respond kind of in a religious manner, that God wants their best sacrifices, God wants their wealth, God wants their kind of family, God wants their children. And we see this in verses 6 through 7, so I'm going to read it again so you can direct your eyes down at that. Verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So what are the people doing? The people are offering their best religion. They're offering their sacrifices. They're offering everything that they think is precious. They're offering their religious duty. And some of these are grounded in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, right? The sacrifices. They're even willing to offer their wealth, 
You know, or if they, if they could amass all the wealth in the world, it's like, man, if I, if I could win the lotto and just give all that money to God, 10,000 rivers of oils, man, God would be pleased with me. Or, you know, maybe I'll, I'll give him my child. Now, in their day, this could turn into something very evil. There was child sacrifice. But in our day, maybe we're thinking other things. Well, maybe, you know, maybe I'm not a success God, but my child, well, my child will go into ministry or be a missionary, and that'll kind of make up. And somehow these people are getting confused. They're getting caught up in all the, the, the religious action. They think they know what it's about, but in fact, their religion is wrong. They've gotten it wrong. They think it's one way, and it's actually a complete different way. Have you ever gone into a situation or circumstance where you thought, this is going to be one way, and it turns out to be a different way? Now, I think some, some, some place that we, we probably do that on occasion is with, like, movies or TV shows, right? I recently watched uh, a Netflix movie, and I watched the trailer, and the trailer looked action-packed, like this apocalyptic, end-of-the-world adventure. It looked amazing, and I watched it, and it was like the most slow, slowest, boring, melodrama uh, movie I had seen in a long time. It was like, wow, that's not what I thought it was going to be at all. Somehow, my perception was distorted, or, or the trailer was just really bad. I didn't understand and sometimes we can do this in our approach to God. We think, God, this is how, of course, you want it to be, but actually it's supposed to be this complete other way. That reality is completely different than what we think it's supposed to be. And so this kind of leads me up to my first point, that God doesn't want our best religion. God doesn't want our best religion. God doesn't want our religious acts He's not interested in the things that we normally associate with being a good Christian. He doesn't want our prayers. He doesn't want our Bible studies. He doesn't want our tithes. He doesn't want our offerings. He doesn't want our worship songs, our volunteering, and our church attendance. He doesn't want those things if, there's an important if there, he doesn't want those things, those religious acts, if we do those acts without caring for the poor and needy. See, God doesn't want our best hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy is? Jesus called it out all the time in his ministry. He didn't want people to act religious while hurting those around them or ignoring the needs of the poor and the oppressed around them. I've been reading Micah for You by Stephen Um, pastor of City Life Presbyterian Church in Boston, and he links our passage with Amos, and Amos has this, this challenging passage that fleshes ours out just a little bit more. Amos 5, 21 through 24 says this, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice off fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness, righteousness like a never-failing stream. See, we can go through all the religious motions, we can do all the religious duties, we can come in here and have a wonderful time of worship, and 
if we're missing this key thing, then it's like nothing to God. God doesn't want this without the other. There is a place for this. There is a place for worship. There is a place for prayer and Bible study and church attendance and giving your tithes and offerings, but it's with this other thing. According to Amos, the Israelites were levying taxes on the poor. They were oppressing the innocent. They were taking bribes so that the poor couldn't get justice in the courts. And then these people are doing what? They're celebrating their religious festivals. (laughs) They're going to temple. They're giving their tithes. But they're corrupt. They're hypocrites. And Jesus can't stand it in his time. They're still doing it then. Matthew 23, 23 says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. God doesn't want our best religion. He doesn't want us to sing his praises in church if the rest of the days of the week we are living like he's dead. He doesn't want our prayers if we're abusing our spouses or our employees or the people that we're responsible for. He doesn't want us to give our tithes and offerings if we're ignoring the single mom and the orphan or if we're not caring for the least of these in some way. Uh, Bernie came up with a powerful illustration this week, so if you don't think it's a good illustration, you can blame him. Thursday was Valentine's Day. Uh, Did anyone get flowers this week for Valentine's Day? A couple people, a couple people. You like it when your husband, I assume your husband bought you flowers, maybe it was someone else. Like, you like it when you receive flowers. I I didn't buy Monica flowers, uh, so I'm just going to put that out there. Okay, so you like it. Your husband he buys you roses. He comes in, he gives you the roses. Year after year, you find this is great, this is wonderful, I love it. Like, this is a wonderful uh, picture of affection. And then one year, you find out that your husband has been having an affair with a florist. Oh, this is terrible. Like, how does that make you feel about the roses? You don't like the roses anymore. Because you know where they've come from. God doesn't want our best roses if our hearts are far from him. God doesn't want our best acts of religious worship if we are neglecting the least of these. If we're turning a blind eye to those who need compassion and care. God doesn't want our best religion. He wants our justice. God doesn't want our best religion. He wants our justice. And see, now we come to our foundation verse. And our foundation verse really sums up the whole message of Micah. Micah 6, verse 8. I really think that this is the Super Bowl passage of the week, Terry. <laughs> With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come with, before him with... Uh, 
That was verse 6. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So what's more important than our best religious, than our most sacred religious acts? He wants justice. God wants justice for the poor, the oppressed, the needy, the broken, the downtrodden. Listen to a message by Timothy Keller this, uh, this week. Uh, he's a pastor. He was a pastor in New York City. He says that justice isn't just about punishing the wicked. Like when we tend to think about justice, we think like justice served, right? That person got what was coming to them. Justice encapsulates that, but there's also a positive side to it. Justice is caring for those who are in need and impoverished. Justice is caring for the least of these. So trying to think about that in our culture, who are, who are the least of these in our culture that maybe we drive past or we see struggling or we hear about struggling in the news like the drug addicts? How about maybe single moms, divorcees? Those in poverty, foreigners and immigrants, people that don't speak English, people that don't fit in, those in prison, panhandlers, alcoholics, you name it. And maybe some of those resonate more with you. You have a heart for one or two of those groups. I think that's the Holy Spirit has put that in you. We should cultivate that. Maybe you're thinking of another group that's poor and needy that I'm not even aware of, that I'm not thinking of. That's amazing. Let's cultivate that in our hearts because that's, that's the beginning of the signs of justice, of this, like, this new flower, <laughs> this new flower that's, that's sprouting through the dirt and through the rocks, and it's, and it's, it's sprouting up, and we want to water that. <laughs> we want to we grow that. We want to make it flourish. Keller brought up the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. It's kind of an example of God's call to do justice, of Christ Jesus' call to do social justice. This comes in Matthew 25. It's the final judgment, all right? So heaven and earth have faded away, and God is before his people. Christ Jesus is before all people. And he's dividing the sheep from the goats. The goats to his left, the sheep to his right. And he says to the sheep, he says to the true believers, those that will spend eternity in Christ, man, I pray this is us. He says this. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Now if we were to go on in Matthew chapter 25, the sheep are like, I don't remember doing this. (laughs) They're confused. I think there's a lot of hope in that. 
Lord, may, may we be confused. Lord, I don't, I don't remember these things that you're saying I did. And Jesus specifically points out in verse 40 of Matthew 25 that they did these good things to his brothers, his sisters, so fellow believers. And so that's an especially important call for us to take care of those within our church body, but I don't think it precludes caring for those in our society because we're going to look at the next couple verses. Then Jesus, he turns to the goats. He turns to those on his left side, or on his left side, and he says this. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and I was in prison and you did not look after me. And the goats are just as shocked as the sheep. But there is no excuse before Christ Jesus. Matthew 25 verse 45. He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least one of these, you did not do for me. One of the things he ended his sermon with is he said, if you don't have a relationship with the poor, you don't have a relationship with God. If you don't have a relationship with the poor, you don't have a relationship with God. I was really convicted by this passage this week. (laughs) This passage like rocked my heart. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it rocked my heart. Matthew 25. Because I can't say that I have like relationships with the poor. And if you were to do a self-assessment, would you say, yeah, I, I have some relationships with the poor and the needy? And I know that these things come and go in seasons, right? Maybe one season we're really involved and other seasons we're not. But this should always be a call to get back into that season of caring for those who are the least of these. I don't want to get to the final judgment uh, without having done some of these things, without having gone out of my way. Because we can get really busy with really good religion, (laughs) with really great things, with really good ministry. And I'm like the number one culprit here. I want want to change. (laughs) I want to live life differently. I hope you do too. So how might we together as a church family make this happen? Because I don't think it'll just happen. The the youth, we're a little short on this week, but the youth, uh, they're going to France, right? And their role is to be an intentional camper. Now, an intentional camper is someone who goes out of their way. So the English kids, they're not supposed to just clump up with the English kids, right? They have to be intentional. They have to to put themselves out of their comfort zone, make friendships, develop relationships with those that they're not normally around so that, Lord willing, they can be an encouragement to them. They can share the gospel with them. There's a reason it's called an intentional camper because it's not something we do naturally. And so maybe we also need to be uh, kind of intentional servants or intentional caregivers or, uh, or intentional ministers of compassion in our world. 
We need to be intentional about going out of our way because it just doesn't happen if we just let it go. And I think there are some ways that we have begun to do this as a church community that I want to encourage us about. We have begun to do this in our benevolence fund, right? You can see that if you open up the bulletin. You can see the benevolence fund and what people have given to that fund. And it's a place where if you're going through a time of financial crisis, if you're a part of our church community, you can submit an application. You can talk to one of the deacons and we can help out with some of the bills or, or like medical payments. There's, there's certain guidelines, but it's a way to really be thoughtful and intentional about caring for those in our church community. And so this is a wonderful opportunity. We also have things like meal trains where we care for each other. We, we provide child care when we're in times of need. These are, these are amazing things where we can be caring for each other in times of need. Lord willing, one day our missions team uh, is going to develop an adoption fund. Adoption's expensive. How can we be helping each other do that uh, financially? And Christ does call us to serve within the church body, right? But I don't think that precludes the call to serve outside the church. That's Jesus' condemnation of the goats. They didn't serve the least of these. It's one of the reasons I'm excited about safe families. There's two of us in the congregation, two families in Cornerstone that have gotten approved and that are or at least in the process. <laughs> and I hope that you will join us because I don't think two is enough. And we haven't helped our first safe family yet, but I hope that we will. I think the more people that, even if you're a family friend, that means you can just kind of be around the kids if you need to. I hope that we'll get more people excited about that and, and together because it really is helping people in need it's helping the least of these in times of crisis, often single moms. What other ways can we dream about caring for the poor and needy in our community? How can we do this? Uh, some people came to uh, Cornerstone, I think it was Monday. It might have been a week ago Monday. Uh, it was Habitat for Humanity of Lowell. Uh, apparently, they've built some houses in Westford, and they're building a house right now, and they were just talking to us, you know, how can you help out? And I made no commitments, <laughs> uh, but it was interesting to hear about that opportunity, because maybe, maybe we say, you know what, we're not going to pick up trash along our street this year. We're going to go help build a house for a family that's in need. I don't know, but if we're not going to do that, we need to think of something else that we can do as a community so that we can care for those around us that, that need a lift up. God cares. God doesn't want our best religion, but he does want our justice. And justice includes lifting up those that need help. God also wants more than that. Because the verse doesn't stop with just justice. There's justice at the cross, but there's also mercy. God doesn't want our best religion, but our justice and mercy. Verse 6, 8 says, love mercy. Now that is the NIV translation, but the ESV translates it, love kindness. So is it love mercy, love kindness? To me, mercy and kindness are two different things, but maybe they shouldn't be. This is the Hebrew word chesed, chesed. I'm really rolling that, that, that guttural for Terry since he's here. 
And this is, this, this is that special love, right? This is that covenant love. This is that love that when two people, when they get to marry, when they get to marry each other and they, they make their vows and they, they, they say like this commitment to each other, that's like a covenant, uh, beautiful act of love. That's chesed. That's right, chesed. <laughs> but this is really kind of a divine love. This is a divine commitment. And God is saying, you should have the same kind of commitment that I have to you. God's usually the one who expresses this kind of chesed, covenant love. And how has he done it for us? How did he do it for the Israelites? Well, he already listed the different ways that he's been good to them. How does he do it to us? Well, he shows us kindness, and he shows us love and mercy. And then he says, go and do likewise. And there's no clearer place where God shows both his justice and his mercy. Mercy is, is getting something, not getting something we deserve, right? Someone is guilty and you're showing them compassion at the cross. At the cross. We sang about the cross. And I was really listening to the words in that song, at the cross, at the cross. The cross, like Calvary, what Jesus did through the cross is supposed to change our lives. It's supposed to make a difference. It's not supposed to be something we just believe in. It's that, but then it's also supposed to change us. It's supposed to work through us to make a difference in our lives. And so if we're to go out and carry our crosses, then we're supposed to go out and, and carry our acts of justice and acts of mercy in our everyday lives, and into our world. See, the gospel centers around the cross and justice and mercy that a rich king, the, the richest of all kings, became poor. He became oppressed. He died among criminals. Jesus was condemned a criminal. <laughs> we see this in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is called the, the, kind of the suffering servant passage. What does it say? He was oppressed. <laughs> he was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. Jesus was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was innocent. He had every right in the world to stand up and say, this is not right. I am innocent. Instead, he allowed himself to be lifted up and crucified. Nails driven through his wrists and feet. We're going to celebrate that soon at Easter. He allowed himself to be identified with the poor and needy so that he could save those who are actually poor and needy. <laughs> Everyone else. <laughs> you and me. Us. And then he rose again. That's the, the great part of the gospel is that Jesus isn't still hanging on the cross. I got to share that at our game night. We were talking about the cross, and, uh, and uh, the gentleman asked, like, you know, where's the kind of the, the Jesus picture? I said, well, you know, he's not on the cross anymore. He's, he's risen. He's risen from the grave. And he rises, and he's seated on a throne right now, and, he's, and, he, and he wants us to be his subjects, his followers, and to live transformed lives because 
we spiritually have died and risen again with him as well. And see, this gets to a point that like, if we're living in that old self, that pre-resurrection self, if we haven't experienced the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're not really going to be able to live just and merciful lives, are we? We're not going to be able to do these things. We're not going to have the heart for it because we need Jesus' heart. And the only way we get that is by dying with him and rising again with him. And so that's, a, that's kind of a, a call to self-examination. If my heart is like stone cold when I hear these things, then do I know Christ? Do I have the heart of Christ? And at the same time, it's an opportunity to say, Jesus, give me your heart. Give me your heart for the poor. Give me your heart for the needy. If I haven't been condemned because of grace, I can't condemn those around me, and I want to lift them up with grace. God doesn't want our best religion, but our justice, our mercy, and it doesn't end there, and humility. God doesn't want our best religion, but our justice, mercy, and humility. Verse 8 says, walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. I think that's so fascinating that it comes at the end of the verse because it's like justice and mercy, these things that are are, are, are so big and challenging, calls us to them, and then he says, it's a walk. <laughs> it implies that you don't have to have it all figured out today. <laughs> this is a journey. This is a starting point. We're all somewhere along this line. There might be some of you, and please tell me about what you're doing, who are caring for the poor and the least of these, and there might be like some of you that are like me who are like still tying on your hiking boots <laughs> and need to get on this trail. God doesn't want our best religion but our justice, our mercy, and our humility. Maybe we've been buying roses from the wrong place. Our heart, our actions, they've been far from Christ Jesus. But this is a journey. This is a time to like till a patch of dirt to get your shovel out and begin to plant and water the finest of roses that God will be pleased with, that are fertilized with true acts of the best religion, <laughs> justice, mercy, and humility to the poor, to the least of these. And the bigger the garden, the more beautiful the garden this isn't just an individual call to me to go out there and do it by myself. It can start there, but it's really a call to us, the community of God, the people of God, to do this together. To think about how we can do this in our community groups. How we can do this in our ministry teams. How we can do this in our uh, large church body. How we can do this in the youth Bible study, how we can even do it in our children's ministry, how we together as a church can be caring for those who need it the most. I want to be a part of a garden like that. God doesn't want our best religion, but our justice, mercy, and humility. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for grace. Thank you that this is a journey. Lord, help us walk this journey. For whatever reason, you brought us through the book of Micah. So we need to hear these things. Help us to hear them, be teachable, have an open heart. And then would you direct us, would you lead us where you want us to go through 
through meetings like I had, but maybe other people have had meetings and ideas. We want to see lives changed by Christ. We want, to, we want to express gospel words and gospel deeds in our world. Help us to do that. Help us to do that together and yet be intentional individually as well. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.